If you haven't already, take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. We have entered into a different part of the book of Acts. It's a transitional chapter. Uh, this has been a wonderful study, and Jesus is the one who gave us the outline for the book of Acts. It's in the statement that he made back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and finally to the end of the earth. The first seven chapters have taken us through the gospel being shared with the Jews in Jerusalem. The second part of Acts is the witness to Judea and Samaria, those who were scattered beyond Jerusalem. And then the third witness is to the rest of the world. And by the way, before the last apostle dies, the gospel would have reached Africa, Asia Minor, and all the way into Europe, to Rome. So everything Jesus said in 1.8 came true. So in chapter 1 through 7, we cover the establishment of the church, and we cover the witness in Jerusalem among the Jews. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, if for it is the power for God's salvation to everyone who believes. And then he said this, First to the Jews, and then the Gentiles. So this is exactly according to the Old Testament. It's in line with what Jesus said in Acts 1, that the gospel would first be delivered to the Jews. They've always had the gospel first. They've had the entire narrative of God's redemptive story from the very beginning first. And so now we see in chapter 8 a change. Now we're moving from Jerusalem to those Christians who were now scattered from Jerusalem into the other regions of that area, namely Samaria and Judea. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews rejected Joseph. God sent Joseph to rise up and lead the Jews into a freedom where the famine had struck the land. But it was his brothers who threw him into slavery. So Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Who were his brothers? They would later become the tribes of Israel, rejected by the man that God had brought to them. And then we go to Moses. Moses, too, was sent by God to deliver the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And the Jews, again, while they follow him out of Egypt, they grumble and complain. And ultimately, they head back for Egypt. They reject him <coughs> as their leader. And then beyond that, we see the prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets have presented Christ beautifully. <laughs> They've given the, the, uh, the messianic prophecies. And what did the people do? What did the Jews do? They rejected Jesus again. And they cast off the prophets. They stoned them to death. They killed them. So all the way through, we see this constant rejection of God's leaders. A constant rejection. And so we come to the book of Acts. 
And this is after Jesus has already ascended to heaven. <laughs> by the way, in the Gospels, Jesus was rejected by the same Jews. They nailed him to a cross. They crucified him. And so now we come to the book of Acts, and now it's the church that Jesus has raised up to share the gospel with the world, and namely in Jerusalem. And what do the Jews in Jerusalem do? Well, they take Stephen, who pronounces the gospel of Christ, who defended uh, the accusations that were brought against him, and they stone him to death. So all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament, into the book of Acts, the Jews have rejected God's leader, the person that God would raise up to help them. And ultimately, that would be God incarnate, Jesus Christ. It's important that we see that, that God first came to the Jews. They were his chosen, holy, and dearly loved, but they rejected him. And so now we come to a different place. We come to chapter 8. And now we see that because of the rejection of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen, it has brought a great stir over the church. Now the church begins to see, first of all, from Stephen that he stood boldly and proclaimed the truth. So the church is emboldened by that. But at the same time that they're being emboldened by the first Christian martyr, Stephen, we also see the Jews being emboldened. Just as they stoned Stephen to death, now they feel emboldened to go after all the Christians. It's interesting. It's not just Stephen that they're after. It's not just Jesus that they were after. It's all who represent Jesus. And so that's what we see here. And, and then we come to verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. He approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So let's break this down if we can. I want to talk to you for a moment about Saul. It says Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Some people are reluctant uh, persecutors. They, they persecute, but they also had this sense or a feeling of guilt or shame for what they did. That's, that's not Saul. Saul gladly, as a zealot, persecuted Christians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul, speaking of his earlier life, said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Saul's supervision over the execution of Stephen was just one example of his persecution. Some believe Saul changed his name after he was saved on the road to Damascus. That's not true. Saul was always his Hebrew name. But he was also of Rome. He, was, he had a dual citizenship. And so his Roman name would have been Paul. So this idea that somehow the change happened because of his conversion is not true. It's just that when he was in Jerusalem, he was known by his Hebrew name, Saul. And then when God changed him on the road to Damascus, he was now going into the pagan world, the Gentile world, and he was using his name, Paul, interestingly. And so we see that uh, he, he, Saul is, is this passionate 
persecutor of Christians. At the same time, we have these passionate witnesses of Jesus Christ and believers. And, and this is, the, this is the, the butting of the heads. And all of this is the work of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul said, I, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So now after he gets saved, he, is, re, re, he resents and he regrets what he did. He, he goes on, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It's good for us to remember that whatever we were prior to Christ, thank God you're not that now. Amen? On the contrary, Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, that is with me. In Acts chapter 26, verse 11, he described what perhaps is his most regretful moment. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It's hard to believe that Paul would have been that person prior to his salvation. He wasn't just a lost person. He was a great destroyer of Christians. Verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, listen, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I voted that believers should die. This is Paul, who early on, living in Jerusalem as a persecutor with great zeal, was Saul. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. He tried to get Christians to blaspheme God. And in raging fury, this is Paul describing himself, in a rage of fury, I was against them. I persecuted them in all the way to foreign cities. That's why he was going to Damascus when God stopped him on the road. He was going to persecute Christians. So this is, this is a picture. It's important that we see this. Saul was in the center of this great persecution that took place following Stephen's death. Now look at the verse 1 again. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we've already talked about that. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Uh, there are two words in the ancient Greek language for the word scattered. So if you see the word scattered, circle it. And let me tell you what the sense behind it, the idea behind the word. There are two words. One is a scattering to the point of, of it's gone. It's, it's no longer present. You scatter something and it's gone. Like you would scatter the ashes of a loved one and they go away. They, they, they just blend in with the rest of matter. That's not what this is meaning. The second ancient Greek language word for scatter means for something to be born. Something to be born. This is interesting. It's a scattering in a sense of planting or sowing seeds. When the story of the sower, he scatters the seed. And the seed brings forth a crop. That's what this means when it says that the church was scattered. 
The church was sent out by God unknowingly to plant and to grow the seed, the word of God, the gospel. So Stephen's death fueled the passion within the church to share the gospel, and the imminent threat of persecution fueled the church to move out of their comfort zone. The church would have stayed in Jerusalem had they not been persecuted, but because of the great persecution that broke out, the Holy Spirit used that to send them abroad. I wonder how often the Holy Spirit is upsetting your apple cart. He's, dis he's bringing discomfort to you in an area. And it forces you out of your regular routine. This is the way of God, church. This is how God moves. God uses death. God uses sickness. God uses trials. He uses setbacks. He uses uh, all kinds of things to get us to scatter to move beyond our place of comfort. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made him made great lamentation over him. All we take from that is that not all the Jews hated Christians. There are some Christians, some devout Jews, who actually didn't agree with the stoning of Stephen. And Saul was, but that, that would not be Saul. Look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging has the idea of an animal tearing into its prey. So think of a wolf that takes down an elk and now it just ravages. It, it literally rips the meat from the carcass. That, that's the idea here. That's what Saul was doing with Christians. He was ravaging them. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It wasn't just the men. He, he didn't care who you were. If you were a believer, you're going to prison. John Stott, one of the great preachers, said, uh, he, he looks at this and he said that Saul not only put Christians in prison, he also sought and secured his victim's death. And if you want to look at chapter 9, verse 1, I, I'm going to borrow from that text in our Acts 9, 1, We'll be there in just a short time, but not yet. But it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for his letter, or for, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called the believers, they belonged to the way, capital W, Okay. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's going to go to other places and bring them back, the Christians. He is really on fire uh, going against Christianity. Chapter 22, verse 4 in Acts. I persecuted this way, W, capital W. I persecuted this way to death. So it wasn't enough for Saul to have them arrested. It wasn't enough to put them in prison. He wanted them to die. Think about this. The first and greatest missionary that God sends out on the earth, the Apostle Paul, earlier in his life wanted Christians put to death. Let that sink in. God can go to any length, and God can use anyone that he chooses to use. To share the gospel. 
in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. When it says that they preached the word, that's misleading. The Greek expression basically means that they shared the good news. Don't think for a second that the whole church was preaching in a pulpit somewhere. No, the whole church was sharing the truth, the gospel, wherever they were scattered to. There again, there's the planting and there's the harvest that's going to come up. That's you, that's me. We can, we can and we should be like these early Christians. We too can share the good news. Every day we have opportunity to take the message of Christ to those people in our lives. This is how people hear the gospel and are saved, through people just like us. This was the way of the early church. The Christians were scattered and they shared the gospel and people got saved. That ought to be the message of Vero Bible Fellowship. We go out each week, we share the message, we scatter the seed, and we see people coming to Christ and getting saved. Amen? That's the message. Let me test the crowd here. How many of you were saved uh, in a church service? Raise a hand. It was, in a, it was in an actual service that you were saved. Raise your hand. Okay. Look around. A few. How many of you were saved through some television broadcast of a sermon or a radio broadcast or by a podcast or by, you know, YouTube? How many of you got saved that way? Raise a hand. Look around. Nobody. Nobody. Okay? How many of you were saved because someone shared the gospel of Jesus or modeled the gospel of Jesus to you and spoke with you? Raise a hand. Keep your hands up. Don't put them down. Those of you who look around, the vast majority of us came to Christ because someone shared Christ with us. The reason why we are called by God to share with other people is because it's the absolute best way to see lost people saved. That the church would be those who are scattering the good news every single day. That's what we would do. Jesus put the onus on us to share the gospel. Why? Because that's the absolute best way to reach lost people. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now we're introduced to Philip, but really not, because in chapter 7, Philip was with, with Stephen when they were both chosen to wait tables. They were both going to be serving bread at the table for the Jews, the Jewish Christians who were struggling with food. This was his beginning, just like Stephen. He was a table waiter. Interestingly enough, that's what I did when I was in college. I waited tables. I learned so much waiting tables because, number one, I love people. So I got to know people quite well. And I worked in nice restaurants up in the Indianapolis area. And I had men who would come, oh, yeah, there's one of our young guys, he's Indianapolis, yeah. And I, and, and I remember uh, guys and gals would bring their, they'd bring their clients into this restaurant to have a meal. And I got to be so good at what I was doing that I knew them by name, I'd speak to them by name, 
I wouldn't ask them what they want to drink. I would show up with the drink for them. And it made them look good in front of their clients. And I did it for the wrong reason. They tipped me well. <laughs> and then I went from being a waiter to a bartender. In order to work in another restaurant as a waiter, you had to learn how to work the bar. And I ended up working the bar from 3 to 6 every afternoon from 3 to 6, the happy hour. I was at the bar by myself. And all the city councilmen, the mayor would come in. I knew what Mayor Rock wanted. A double Smirnoff on the rocks right there for that man. That's what he wanted. And here I am serving not only bread, but I'm serving <laughs> spirits. The wrong spirit. Because the Holy Spirit really hadn't grabbed hold of me yet. That was my beginning. You have a story. Your beginning is just as important, if not more important where you were and what God had to rescue you from and how God transformed you. And now he's given you the responsibility as the church to spread the seed, to share the gospel with people. Every one of you. Oh, how selfish it would be to see all these hands in the room go up when there was someone who took time to share with us and then we would never share with anybody else. That's so self-centered. That's so wrong. God's looking to us. Philip was one of those that God called to go beyond serving tables. Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he, he was filled with the Spirit. He had wisdom, and he had a good reputation. Those were the three qualifications to serve at the table of the Lord, and that's what he did. So, like Stephen, Philip was one of the men chosen. And the Jews had rejected the gospel, and now we see God extending the offer of salvation to the Gentiles. And this is where Stephen fits into the picture. He goes to, the Bible, the scripture here says, to Samaria. So let's talk for a second about Samaria and Samaritans, okay? 600 years earlier, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember Rehoboam, the king in the Old Testament, under his leadership, the kingdom of Israel was divided. You had the southern kingdom, Judah, and you had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. The capital was Samaria. There was a tremendous amount of wealth in Samaria. But when God brought down the evil northern kingdom, and he also ultimately brought down the southern kingdom because both had turned away from God. But because the northern kingdom had committed such apostasy and had gotten caught up in idol worship and everything else, he brought the Assyrians in to actually haul off all the wealthy people of notoriety in Samaria. And all the really, all the middle and upper class were hauled away. They were exported out of their homeland into the Gentile world. They literally wanted to take away their identity. The only ones left were the poor, the poor Jews in Samaria. And then not only did they export the wealthy and the middle class, they imported pagans. The pagans lived in Samaria with the remaining Jews. And after a period of time, they intermingled. They married one another. 
Don't believe it was not a far cry for that to happen because Israel, the northern kingdom, had already fallen into apostasy. So it's just God said, You want to sin? Okay, I'll, I'll let you sin. And he imported pagans in there that they would sleep with, marry, and have children. And now they're watered down. Well, the southern kingdom, which was Judea, uh, Judah, which the capital being Jerusalem, now in this day with Philip and Jesus walking on the earth before Philip, uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Why? Because they're a bunch of half-breeds. They're not real Jews. And there's this great prejudice between Samaritans and Jews. If you remember, in Jesus' day, he traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem by way of Samaria. And as he was passing through with his eyes, the Bible says, set on Jerusalem, they were passing through Samaria. And it was getting late in the evening. They needed a place to rest for the night. So he sent James and John, the brothers who were disciples, James and John, ahead of them to prepare at a village, a place where they could sleep. When they arrived, the people rejected them, would not receive them. And it says, because they had their eyes set on Jerusalem. You're not staying here because you want to stay with us. You're on your way to Jerusalem. They're our arch enemies. And so the, even the, the hatred for the Jews in Samaria was real. They would not receive them. They come back to Jesus, James and John, said, hey, they won't receive us. Lord, send down fire on them right now. Kill them all. Wipe them out. That's how much the hatred existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was real. But this is where God sent Philip. Right smack dab into the epicenter of racism. He sent him to where there was great prejudice. Philip being one from Jerusalem. God didn't raise up a missionary in Samaria to reach the Samaritans. He raised up somebody from Jerusalem to go to Samaria and reach the Samaritans. For this to work, it has to be God. No other way to get around it. Remember the story Jesus with, with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. Remember that? And that story is surrounded by racism, by, Judea, by uh, prejudices. And then the story of the good Samaritan. Jesus told that story. It wasn't a Jew who helped the Jew. It was a Samaritan who helped. Jesus is fighting against the racism. I pray that the same would be said of our day. I mean, oh, how... Our world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. How our nation needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. How the media needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. How politicians need the gospel of Jesus Christ. How our cities need the gospel of Jesus Christ. How the various races on the earth need the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians, I love this. See, God's all about bringing people back together. God's all about restoring 
Doesn't matter what the past says. Doesn't matter how bad it was. Doesn't matter what others did to you or what you did to others. What matters is that you come to the foot of the cross and surrender your life to Jesus Christ and allow him to transform you into a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And if that's the case for any Christian in this day, you have no right to take sides on the issue of racism. No right. Your life no longer belongs to you. You belong to Christ. If anything, Christ is sending you where it's the epicenter, it's the hot spot for racism, to share the gospel. Turn in your Bible. I, I, don't, I, there's a, I wanted to go a lot further than where we are, but I'm not sure we're going to. If the Lord would keep us here, that would be fine with me. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at verse 9. We're going to read just three verses. Paul, a guy who used to persecute Christians, had a terrible reputation, is now the greatest missionary. And he says this to the church in Corinth, to believers. So we're believers, so he's speaking these words to us. The Spirit of God's using this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Let me set it up for you. What's happened is in the church, people were falling back into old patterns of living. They weren't remaining true. They weren't allowing the Spirit to continue to transform them, to sanctify them, to conform them to the image of Jesus. So Paul's concerned about that. He says, do not be deceived, neither, here it is, these are the old patterns of many of these people, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and in the original, in the original manuscripts, it actually says homosexuality and effeminate. Men who dress like women. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And let's just go ahead and throw it in. Nor racists will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the next verse is the greatest verse. And such were some of you. Everything that Paul just identified as a pattern of sin, he said, those of you in the church in Corinth, you used to be in these patterns of sin. Now listen, that message right there, do you understand what he's saying? People who were murderers can actually be transformed by God. People who were perverted in their sexual sin can be transformed by God doesn't matter what your past is, God can change you. If we, the church, ever forget that and lose hope for people that are lost in this world, then we have no message to take to them, and we won't take it to them. But if we always remember that 
It doesn't matter how far somebody is away from God. God can transform them. Therefore, I must scatter the seed. I've got to do my part. This is why, listen, let me just speak honestly. You know me. I'm not going to hold back from the truth. I'm going to say it the way it is. This is why cancel culture, the cancel culture is evil. It's evil. There's no room in cancel culture for forgiveness, for repentance, and for redemption. Whatever you did before, that's who you are. We're going to hold you accountable for it. That is not of the Lord. That is sinful. That is evil. That is sown by Satan, not God, in this world. Same is true for Antifa. Same is true for Black Lives Matter. These are evil organizations. Let me tell you this about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter opposes everything that God established about family, about marriage, and about identity. It's evil. It doesn't build up. It tears down. That's all that Satan can do is take away what God has built. He cannot build anything good. There's no good within him. And if you get caught up in that nonsense, the political systems, listen, I don't care if it's Republican Party, Democrat, Independent, whoever, whatever, I'm telling you right now, none of that is from God. There's not near enough amens in the room. I'm telling you right now, right now, that's not God's business. That's the enemy's business. Anything that separates people, anything that puts on a presentation of morally good, yet many of those, even in the Republican Party, they're not saved. They're not going to heaven. Their hope isn't in Christ. Their hope is in their political beliefs. I'm telling you right now, I don't know what the future of America is, but the only answer for America is God. I'm not even going to address the Democrats. That's so way out there, whacked out. Good grief. Four years ago, five years ago at their convention, they didn't even pray. If you put your hope in any other organization of man. You know what the Bible says the difference between God and man is? It says, God is not a man that he should lie. How do you know the difference between God and man? Men lie. Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 40. Maybe this is right. I don't know if I'm going, taking you to the right place or not. I'm second-guessing. Like I said, turn to Psalms 40. No, I'm just. <laughs> All right, let me just read the verse. It's, isn't that something? You know the verse, but you don't know where it's found. That's terrible. Okay, the scripture says, blessed is the man who doesn't lapse into falsehood. He doesn't put his hope in man. How are you blessed when you don't 
hope in man or man's systems or man's ways. You put your hope in God, period. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't start with man. The gospel starts with God. The gospel is not about man being good enough to earn his place in heaven. The gospel is about God seeing man in his state of lostness with no hope and God coming down and reaching man. The gospel is not about holding on to the past. The gospel is about giving everybody a future. So he goes to Samaria of all places. And, and, and this is amazing to me. He goes there, verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip in Samaria when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of the many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip came presenting the gospel with signs and wonders following as an impressive uh, confirmation. Let me tell you, they needed signs and wonders. People are saying today, well, why, why don't we see more signs and wonders? Because you don't need them. You know who Jesus is. You're just not following him. You're rebelling against him. These people didn't have a clue. These people needed a sign so they would listen to what he was saying. And then after they listened, they heard the gospel. Now they're getting saved. And great joy breaks out in Samaria, a place that hated Jews. And it was a Jew who shared the message of the gospel that gave them great joy. This is the picture of the church. Here we are today. We're all different. I guarantee you if we all sat down and wrote the things that we believe on a piece of paper, it'd be so different you'd go, you believe, what? I worship with you? If, if we all wrote down our background, what kind of culture we were raised in, some of you came from the Northeast. Others came from Michigan. Others of you came from the West. Others of you were born in the South. There's no way that all these people groups would come and worship God together, except that's what the gospel can do. It joins us. Nothing else matters. This is what Philip brought to Samaria, and they rejoiced over it. They got saved. Now, what time is it? We're going to, we're going to, what time is it? 11.19, okay. Well, there's another section. There's two more sections. Uh, there's the next verse that picks up here. And, uh, and I'm going to skip verse 9. And, I'm gonna, and I was going to cover verse 26 today and come back next week and cover 9 through 25 because it's really a powerful story. But I think what we'll do is this week, or we'll, we'll come to a close. Next week, we'll cover uh, verses, verses 9 through 25. And then the following week, we'll cover 26 through the end of the chapter. All, there, there, there are some great truths that God has given us in these two areas or passages. And I want to take our time and work through them. I think this morning... I just have a sense in my spirit, we need to stop. We, we've covered it. God's put enough on our plate that we need to think about it now. You know, it's one thing to have your plate filled with food. It's another thing to devour the food. It's another thing to chew your food. Some people inhale. 
Others chew before they swallow. And I'm asking you today to chew on what the Spirit of God has spoken to you. And it might not have been anything I said. This, this message is not about what I said. It's about the text. It's about how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you by this text today. Are you sharing the seed? Are you being faithful to the call of Christ? Are you using excuse for your past as why you can't? You have no excuse. Are you caught up in taking sides on these social issues that have a foundation in evil? Don't do it. Don't fall into that trap. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think there should ever be a white church, and I don't think there should ever be an Asian church, and I don't think there should ever be a black church. That is a, that is a sin against God. Now look, we are predominantly Anglo, white in this room. And I want to tell you right now, that does not reflect our community. Okay? We've got work to do. We don't just go out and share with white people. We need to share with all people the gospel of Jesus. We want every church ought to have a blending of color. I mean, there's nothing like a good, you know, crock pot stew, man. It took all night to get that stew melded where, man, all the flavors are enhanced. That's God's church. We're not supposed to all look different in churches. That is not the plan of God. That's the plan of man. Now, how we got here, those of you who came from another church, you probably came from a church that had a predominant color, and that's what you... But I'm telling you right now, I pray that as time goes, that we would see Vero Bible Fellowship reflect all the kinds of people that live in our region. You say, who should come to our church? What's our target? Our target is everybody that lives in Vero Beach and Sebastian and Fort Pierce. Anybody who lives in our region, we, we would love to have you be part. Amen? Amen. As the, as the rain is falling outside, may the Spirit of the Lord rain down upon you this teaching, the truth in this teaching. And that this week you would see a deluge of change and transformation in your life. I pray that for you. Lord, today it's not enough for us to hear truth. We can hear it and still miss heaven. We can hear it and still not fulfill your earthly plan through our lives. We need to walk in it. We need to be transformed by it. We need your spirit to fall upon us fresh. Oh, God. I want to read you something. Scripture is very clear 
about God's desire for us as a church. This is the prayer of the prophet Hosea for the people. Come, let us, I can't even see it. Hang on a second, my eyes. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as his dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. If we will press into the Lord, he will come to us. His Holy Spirit will equip us, will empower us to be witnesses. That's what we pray as a church. God, change us. We take our eyes off of those around us. We take our eyes off of our nation, off of the government, off of various people groups. And we say, Lord, change us. Come to us like the spring rain waters the earth. Change us so that we are vessels that can be used to bring forth a harvest of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't say it in the message, but you know, one of the reasons why Stephen or Philip had such success in Samaria was because before Philip, Jesus went to Samaria and shared the seed. Philip went and brought forth the harvest. Wherever you go this week, know this, God's gone before you. He is preparing for you a way to talk to people. And he's preparing people in your path to receive the message. Be faithful to share it. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a good day in the Lord.